Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there's a TV show that ran for 12 seasons on NBC and TLC that I've never heard of until this week. In fact, this show ran from 2010 to 2022, and maybe it's a consequence of not having like normal TV, or I don't know why, but 12 seasons running on prime time on NBC, and I had never even heard of the show. I had never even seen this show advertised. It's called, Who Do You Think You Are?, And the premise was that they would invite a celebrity onto this show and they would do a sort of genealogy of these celebrities. They'd kind of go through their family histories for them. They did all sorts of people, Spike Lee, Gwyneth Paltrow, Rob Lowe, America Ferreira, all these people, 12 years. I have no idea that it existed. The only reason that I found out, and by the way, this wasn't a show that like didn't rate well. It got 6 million viewers a week. This was like a moderate hit that was very, very cheap to produce for NBC. And I'd never heard of it. Now, did I find out about this show? Because I was Googling, who do you think you are stories? Because that's how I wanted to start my sermon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But still, it's kind of wild that I've never heard of this. I was very shocked as I started to read the Wikipedia page. I was Googling that question because the stories of where we come from shape the stories of both our individual lives and our communal lives. They shape who we are as individuals and communities. You, you can see this loud and clear. If you're a part and a, somebody who lives here in St. Petersburg, uh, not a week goes by that there's not some headline coming out about what's happening with the stadium and the gas plant different, uh, district. And that is because of how rooted it is in our story as a city. But you also see how this works out in our own individual lives. Our families of origin shape us. They, they sort of mold us. And who we think we are has a strange, determinative effect on our lives. It can shape us and mold us. And this isn't something new. This isn't something specific to our cultural moment. This is something that has gone back throughout all time in history. It's hard to read the stories of history without seeing that people asking that question, who do you think you are, are the sort of people that changed history. Whether it was intrepid leaders or heads of state or groundbreaking scientists, people altered the course of the world through their self-perception. And while none of us will likely grace the pages of a history book 200 years from now, it's true in our lives in smaller ways. Who we think we are can determine so much about us, and it can change so much about our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and our families. And just like the sins of the fathers can be passed down to the children, so our communities or cultures can pass down sinful ideas to us. And oftentimes, we don't even know that this is happening. That's why the Bible calls us back again and again to the transcultural truths of who God is and what he is doing in this world. We have to constantly be checking ourselves and our thoughts against the standard of what God has revealed to us. We need to believe who God says we are, even when it flies in the face of who we think we are. 
And we need to learn to live according to the promise and premises of scripture. And that's how we begin to grow. I bring all this up because we're coming to the end of our study of the prophet Amos. And in this final passage, what Amos is going to do is he is going to take the history of the northern kingdom of Israel and he's going to turn it on its head. He's going to kind of turn it upside down in order to show the people who they are, but much more who they should be. So if you're able, I'd invite you to please stand as I read Amos chapter 9 for us. Um, The words will be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along if you have a copy of the Bible with you. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies there, I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chamber in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I shall, that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As with the rest of Amos, Amos is tied to a specific moment in the history of the people of Israel. 
This is uh, reaching back and the ideas that he is reaching for go back uh, to the time where the northern kingdom of Israel was founded. That was about 200 years before Amos came on the scene. And I, I want to go back through and do a little bit of that history. You'll have to bear with me for just a second because it actually is really helpful in understanding what this text is getting at. After the time of King Solomon, uh, he passed the kingdom on to his son Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not quite as good of a leader as his dad Solomon, and, and things were not going well. The tribes in the north, the 10 northern tribes, didn't like the amount of taxes that they were having to pay. And so an intrepid young entrepreneurial leader named Jeroboam decided, here's what we'll do. We'll just leave. We're just going to leave all of those southern tribes to themselves, and you should totally make me king. And the people bought into it. They totally said, yeah, okay, fine. Jeroboam, you're now the king of all of these northern tribes. Now, listen, I know, I know that having the first kings of the divided kingdom of Israel be Jeroboam and Rehoboam is confusing and tough to remember. I know, but stick with me here because what would happen was as the northern kingdom began, as Jeroboam began to rule this nation, there was a problem. And the problem was three times a year, all of the people from all of the northern tribes would go to Jerusalem. They would go for the pilgrim feasts at the temple, for, for Passover. They would go down for, for what we call the Feast of Booths. And as every time they went, they were reminded of how nice it was when there was just one kingdom of Israel. Wasn't it great when we all could get along and there was just one king and we didn't have to deal with this infighting? And so Jeroboam, being a leader that he was, decided, you know how we fix this? You know how we fix this? We'll just build our own temple and I'm going to run a smear campaign and tell everybody that Rehoboam is a terrible person and then I'm going to, to make a, a new altar and, and do that. He was, he's using the concept of religion to influence politics. There is nothing new under the sun. So he built this new altar in a town called Bethel. And he said, this is where we go for feasts now. This is the place where we should go. And you know what? It shouldn't be the high priest who stands next to the altar. In the middle of the temple in Bethel, do you know who gets to stand by the altar and keep an eye on everything and make sure everything's going okay? The king. The king is the one who's in charge. The king is the one who is going to look over all of this. The king is the one who's going to stand by the altar. Okay. Thank you for hanging with me through history time with Justin, but it's meaningful and it's significant because look down at verse one. Where does, Jer or where does Amos see the Lord standing? Next to the altar. He is turning this idea on his head. It's a clear but important subversion of what the Northern Israelites had been doing in worship. Instead of the king standing by the altar, it's God. Instead of the king smiling at all his subjects, God is about to destroy the whole temple at Bethel. The people of Israel, through their lack of righteousness and justice, through their exploitation of the poor and the powerless, through their false worship at a false temple, had made a mockery of God and his law. This is what everything in Amos has been about up to this point. And the coming judgment that Amos had been warning people about again and again and again, the time for that judgment is now here. God is going to shatter this temple from the top 
to the bottom. He, he uses the image of sort of slapping the top of the pillars so hard that they're driven down through the foundation of the earth and the foundation where those pillars were like a hammer, hammering a nail in. And the people of God who are there near the temple will either perish there or they'll run out and flee, but there's nowhere that they can flee for, from God. In verses two through four, he, he kind of gives all these lists of them. If they dig, dig into the earth, he's going to find them. If they climb up to the heavens, he'll bring them down. It reads almost like a green eggs and ham, but terrifying. God is going to find them on a train. God is going to find them on a plane. And I, I, know, I know it's like, you know, a little bit to make light, but it is God's judgment coming for all the people. His eyes are fixed on them. And that phrase is a phrase that you read a lot in scripture, but Amos turns it around, fixed on them for judgment, not for blessing. The people of Israel have abused the grace of God. They have trampled on his people. They have failed to look around. And so the Lord, who is God over all the earth, the true king, not Jeroboam and his descendants, Amos reminds the people that this powerful God who he describes in verse five and six is not somebody to be trifled with. This is a serious matter. And one of the temptations we have as Christians is the temptation to trample on the grace of God. Well, you know, I know that God's going to forgive me. So it's okay if I just go ahead and sin a little, you know what I mean? I I know that God, I know that God's a forgiving God, you know, so, so kind of who cares how I treat those people? you know, because I can just pray and God will forgive me and everything will be okay. Or maybe this one's a little closer to home. You know what? This is just who I am. And God must have made me this way. So my sin is fine. It's just a part of who I am. You know, no big deal. What we do is we fail to see that the sins that we commit are so serious that they're deserving of judgment. That's hard for us to hear. We don't, we don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. And yet, if we read through the pages of Scripture, if we allow Scripture to be our guide for how we understand ourselves and understand God, we can see how much we are like the people of Israel in the time of Amos, how we have the same hubris they had. But God will not be mocked, and he will not forget. When we put on a religious show, God calls for the curtains. That was true for Israel, and that's true for us. But Amos wants the people of Israel to really understand who they are, really understand who they are and who they are not. And so he begins with a list of questions. You can see this in verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites? And, and what about the Philistines? Aren't you like the Assyrians? It seems that what Amos is trying to help the people of, uh, people of God understand is that God bringing them out of the land of Egypt was special and important, but it was not entirely unique. Uh, the Cushites were uh, people who lived in the far south of Egypt. And in the Bible, it's sort of like saying Timbuktu, you know, just like the farthest place from here that you could possibly imagine. That's what the Cushites were to the people of the Bible. And yet even those people had migrated from what we now know and call Ethiopia to southern Egypt. 
And the Philistines were a Phoenician colony of people from the Mediterranean islands, probably Crete. And the Assyrians were likely Indo-Eurasians from the mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. God is saying, listen, yes, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, but you're not the first nation that I have moved around the world. I have done it before. I will do it again. I am in control and sovereign over all of the nations. I move them around as I see fit. He raises one nation up and casts another down. Yes, the exodus was significant, but it wasn't entirely unique. And if you divorce the exodus from its religious significance, which the people of Israel had done, which Amos has been pointing at this whole book, it loses its meaning because then it's just migration. Now, I want to pause for a second um, because I got to ask a question two times this week from people reflecting on Amos. And, and there's something that I haven't mentioned so far as we have gone through the study of Amos that I would be amiss if I didn't comment on here, um, which is, as you read through Amos, it's entirely natural for us to read this and draw a straight line between whoever Amos seems to be talking to and the modern nation state of Israel. And since the terrorist attacks a month ago, everyone's radar is kind of tuned in to Israel as a place. But the modern Israeli state is not the same thing as Israel in the Bible or even who Israel is referred to here in the book of Amos. So I want to kind of tease this out just a little bit so we understand it well. First, when Amos is addressing Israel and his prophecies, he's not even talking about all the Jewish people. He's just talking about the people of the northern 10 tribes that had broken off that were under Jeroboam. And so for Amos, he is talking about this and he's talking about judgment that's not some distant future thing. Amos is going to live to see what happens when his prophecies come true because in the year 722, Assyria is going to absolutely obliterate the northern kingdom. This is a prophecy that is going to happen in most of these people's lifetimes. The second thing that we need to hold in our minds as we think about the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible altogether, is that Israel was often used as a shorthand for the people of God. Even where we get the name Israel uh, helps us understand that. You might remember Father Abraham. Uh, he had many sons. Uh, many sons had Father Abraham. He's, he's called that. We sing that song. We teach that song to our kids because he is the father of those who have faith. That's what Hebrew call, Hebrews calls him. And Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob was the one, if you remember, who wrestled with God. And after he wrestled with God, not only did he come away with a limp, but God changed his name. God changed Abraham's grandson's name to Israel. And that's why we call the people of Israel the people of Israel. They're the descendants of Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons. Well, actually, it's 13. It's kind of confusing. The 12 tribes came from Jacob. It came from Israel. And so the people of faith passed down from Abraham were the same as the people of Israel who had faith. And loads of promises were made to the people of Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. God made a covenant with David and his family. And here's the key. Each one of these covenants finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus. If you've been reading through the Daily Prayer Project, which Elise mentioned earlier, uh, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews. And this is one of the big idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to lay out. All of the promises of God 
are yes and amen in Jesus. That means that he is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Israel, and David, which means that Jesus is the one who all of these things, these promises point to. And we find our connection to these promises because when we turn to him in faith and repentance, we're united to Jesus in a mysterious and supernatural way. Which means that with the coming of Jesus, the Israel of God, his people is no longer a single nation state, but people of God called out from around the world, from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. That is the true Israel of God. That is God's chosen people. And so the judgment that Amos is predicting isn't anything having to do with the war with Hamas today. That's not what Amos is about, and I don't want to give that impression in any way. Rather, this is about the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. It's about the people of God being judged for the false worship that was propped up by Jeroboam. And when Amos uses the metaphor of a sieve like he does in verse 9, he, he's using this to show that something else is happening. He's showing that not a pebble is going to fall to the earth. What does that mean? Well, when you would plant wheat in Israel, uh, you would shake it through something like a colander. And that would make sure that all of the rocks or impurities or whatever else you didn't want in there, it would stay in the colander and the wheat would get spread throughout all of the ground. The wheat seed would fall through, all the impurities stick in the sieve. Those who had lived lives of injustice would be caught, but the seed of God's people would be scattered among the nations. Even this judgment that God predicts on the people shows us that there's something a little bit more going on. God is sending faithful people out into the world, the nations, to be witnesses to his truth and goodness. And so Amos shows how this is going to uh, bear fruit in a beautiful way. The destruction of the northern kingdom is not the end of the story, Amos tells us. Because God's aim is to restore and rebuild, not just a kingdom of some of the tribes of Israel, but a new kingdom that doesn't have its roots or origins in the politics of this world, rather the kingdom that is from another world, from above. If you look at verses 11, 15, you will see that it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And if you were with us for Bible study uh, last fall, you might remember that that's the way that we described God's kingdom. That's the definition we used. God is going to restore the line of David, which had become corrupted and evil. The northern kingdom had rejected the heir of David, Rehoboam, but God is going to raise up a descendant of David to set all things right. That's what verse 11 is all about. The son of David will rebuild and repair all of the things that are broken and broken down. And more than that, it's not just going to be for ethnic Israel. It's going to be for all of the nations as verse 12 shows us. In fact, when the early apostles were meeting, as, as Gentiles began to become a part of the church of Jesus Christ, the, the apostles called a meeting and said, hey, we've got to got to sort through this. We've got to figure out how we as Jews and Gentiles are all going to live together as Christians. And James stood up. And when James stood up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to say, hey, we are all going to be one church all together. Do you know what passage he pointed to to do that? This one. He pointed to verse 12, where all of the nations are going to be the inheritance of Jesus. And this blessed future isn't just for a single nation, but 
all of God's people living in abundance and beauty. The mountains will drip with sweet wine. The harvest is going to be so abundant that when the harvest, when the sower is out sowing seed, the reaper is going to be catching up and breathing down his neck. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the picture of that is, is almost a cartoonish, right? That, that as soon as you sow the seed, you're able to reap the harvest. That's the kind of abundance that is going to happen in God's kingdom. Unimaginable blessing, inconceivable joy, gardens and cities electric with the buzz of palpable goodness from this time forth forevermore. You and I can't imagine the blessing that God has in store for us. I can't communicate the overwhelming joy and jubilation that we're going to experience in that day. And yet Amos tells us that there will be a restoration, that all of the sad things will come untrue. And if we're trusting in Jesus, this is our destiny. This is where we are heading. I began this morning by talking about uh, the origin, how our origins affect our lives. But even more than that, when we arrange our lives by where we are heading, we open up all sorts of new possibilities and pathways. Beloved, we are headed for the city of God a city of joy that is unmatched, a place of peace and justice, a place where the least of the least walk together with those who were powerful and all of them are equal at the feet of King Jesus. So let's order our lives around where we are headed, not just where we've been. Yes, we acknowledge where we have come from and how it has shaped us, but let's, let's center our lives on where we are going Because when we believe that this is the place that we're headed to, we get to speak and love with the assurance that no matter what happens in the short-term future, in the long-term future, this is the certainty we can have. We are free to love one another, to care for one another. We're able to show justice and lavishly care for others because we know that that's we're practicing, we're training for utopia. And so the lives that we live now are lives that we live anticipating where God is going to take us. And so may we be a church that is formed and shaped by the goodness that is coming that Amos ends his book with. Let's pray.